Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. I want to thank friend of the show, Shanice Marcel, for recommending this guest. Uh, we'll get into that, how they met. So our guest today grew up in Alberta. She attended uh, Nate Ooks, where she played in the CCAA. She's been to the Parapan Games in Peru, where she earned a bronze medal with Team Canada, and most recently just qualified for Tokyo with the Team Canada women's sitting team. So please welcome to the show, Sarah Malinka. Sarah, thanks for doing this. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. So in speaking to Shanice, when we were talking and we were cheering you guys on when you were in Halifax, uh, you guys had met a long time ago, I guess. Were you, did you win a contest or an auction? You were captain of the day and you got to hang out with the women's national team? <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of my grad gift um, in 2016. I was graduating and my parents and I have always been like huge fans of Volleyball Canada. So we sponsored like the silent auctions and stuff and it surprised me with being, yeah, like the Team Canada captain for the day and training with the Team Canada women's standing team. So we flew out to Winnipeg and trained with them for the weekend. And yeah, that's kind of where I met Shanice and a couple of the other girls. But I mostly only just stayed in contact with Shanice. Nice. And with you winning that, was there anyone you were really excited to meet because you're already a fan of the national team? <laughs> it was actually Shanice, yeah. Nice. <laughs> she, I always like had like my eye on her because she was a little bit shorter but played still on the outside and jumped like as high as anybody else did on the team. So she was kind of like my idol on the team anyway, so it was kind of cool how friendship then grew out of it. Nice, and, and kind of doing some research before the show, it looked like you were into track and a few other sports, so what made you really fall in love with volleyball and choose it as your sport? Yeah, I did track all of high school too, um, focus on like all the high jump, triple jump, long jump, never ever ran, so that, <laughs> that's probably why I like volleyball, because I don't <laughs> have to run that much. <laughs> um, so, I don't know, I think volleyball, it's the whole, I liked it because it's still team sport, I didn't like track as much because it was very individual, very single athlete, you're kind of your own uh, go-to person, whereas with um, volleyball, you're, you have your team around you all the time and stuff. So I kind of kept volleyball with that. And then just my parents and grandparents and everybody, everybody loved volleyball. So stayed with that um, after high school. Nice, nice. And I understand in high school is when you were originally diagnosed, right? And I, I imagine reading Shanice's blog, it was actually pretty tricky. So your fans would probably recognize this, but hopefully we'll introduce you to some new fans through the show. Can you just sure, explain yeah. what, what the process was like? Because I imagine just reading it, there was a few misdiagnoses or people just didn't get it right off the bat. So how did you finally land on what was happening? Yeah, so there was a lot of misdiagnosis, lots of people not believing me. I was in grade 9 when kind of things started to get really serious. And then grade 10 volleyball season, I would play a game and then have to sit out the next game and or between sets, I would have to like lie on the ground with my legs up with ice, not really knowing what was happening. So at that age, you're going through all the growing pains and everything anyway. So all the doctors were like, oh, it's just shin splints, just shin splints. So I did the normal shin splint recovery where you kind of take some time off, kind of don't, but you just ice in between and do tape and massage therapy and stuff like that. But nothing ever helped it. Um, I took off badminton season in my grade nine year. So then I could play club my grade 10 year and it was still just as bad as it was like six or four months before when I ended the season in November for high school. So nothing, um, nothing made it better. So we went to specialists all the time, all over um, Edmonton and Beggarville and Two Hills and every small town you could get any kind of hospital we went to. And my parents and I would actually wake up at 3 a.m. from Beggarville. We would drive to Emerge 
to the University of Alberta or the Stollery or really any hospital that kind of had a minimal waiting time uh, when I had really bad pain days. And we would go and we would wait with them. And then we would try and see a doctor who hasn't seen me yet who might have a different idea about it. But it was never never anything different. Um, so it was very stressful and being in grade 9, grade 10, um, you kind of start to believe what the doctors are telling you. So you start to believe that nothing's wrong. It's just all in your head. It's just shin splints. Everybody has shin splints. Um, so nothing's wrong. So you kind of start to believe that. And then one day it was actually my mom who diagnosed me, which was really funny. We did the whole something's wrong with me. I'm going to go on Google. <laughs> and we Googled my symptoms and kind of Googled what was happening. And she like read out the symptoms for compartment syndrome. And she was like, okay, these kind of make sense. So we, like, kind of did a couple tests that, like, they just said to do online. I think it was just, like, um, go on your tippy toes and do some calf raises and stuff. And I was, like, in a big amount of pain coming out of those, like, little Google tests. So we decided to go to the specialist that I was going to, a sports doctor in Edmonton. And my mom kind of just, like, brought it up. And she was like, okay, so we might, like have this compartment syndrome like is there anything that you guys can do and she like really immediately was like that's not it like that's not it again we don't know what it is um so we went home and I think like the next day my mom's like you know we're gonna like demand for something so we went back in and they decided to do the compartment syndrome pressure test which is absolutely awful I would never wish that upon my worst enemy basically they take a 16 gauge needle and growing up on a farm, that's the ones that you use on your cows when you're injecting them. <laughs> and they take it and they go into the to both sides of your legs, so on the lateral side and the medial side. And they kind of shove it in until they reach um, a pressure through your compartment of muscle. So your, all your muscles are surrounded by fascia. And your fascia expands when your muscle expands when you work out and stuff. And my fascia wasn't expanding. So whenever I worked out, I would have extreme lack of blood flow to my muscles. So that's what was causing me the pain and the extreme weakness and tightening. So basically, they shoved this needle three times in kind of like the same area. So you have like 12 needles by the end of it. And they test the pressure in your leg. And then you go on the treadmill and you run until you basically can't run. So I think I got like eight minutes because like I said I'm not really a runner <laughs> and then um you go back into the uh room and they do the same tests, the same needle spots and stuff and they test the pressure and they just see if that pressure rises or not and mine skyrocketed so then it kind of got me to that diagnosis of compartment syndrome so they sent me to a surgeon and the surgeon's like I don't believe this go do it again so about two months later, I got that pressure test done again. Oh, no way. I just, yeah, because they wanted to make sure that it was all for real. Because you don't want to go into a surgery. Like, nobody wants to get surgery. But you don't want to go if it's nothing um, that you like that you don't need. So I understood where he was coming from. But if it was maybe just, like, blood test or something, I'd be more okay with it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I got that pressure test done again. And it came back the same results. If not, I think worse. And then... I think it might have been about three months later they scheduled a surgery date. So then I went under the knife there. Wow. Yeah. And, and was yeah. Now, in reading your, your story, you've had over 10 surgeries now. Was that originally part of the plan or was it supposed to be like the, the first one was supposed to solve everything? Like were you 
kind of having high hopes that you could return to play as soon as you had the first surgery? Yeah, definitely. So with Googling and um, other people having it, just finding them out on Facebook and stuff, they all said that mostly you uh, get the surgery. By that night, you're walking out of the hospital. And by like a week later, you're doing a little bit of rehab. And then you should get back to normal. So the surgery isn't anything um, extreme. Basically, what they do is they cut the sides of your leg. And they go in with a scissor and they cut that fascia that surrounds the muscle. So then your muscle is able to breathe and it doesn't have that constriction of the fascia ever anymore. So it's nothing that's like you're rearranging your leg like it does with like a knee injury or you're taking stuff out or putting stuff in. It's just slicing that fascia that kind of releases that tightness that's in your calf. So it's supposed to be really fast and it was only supposed to be the one surgery. So I was expecting to be back at home that night recovering for like about a week and then kind of back and doing stuff on the farm like I normally would have but it was July 10th was my surgery and I got out of the stallery August 15th I believe so it was a full month in hospitals hospitals wow and like you said with you living on a farm and being very active like an active lifestyle do you remember how you dealt with that at such a young age like could you give any tips to our listeners who are dealing with injuries of how you kind of got through that because I imagine there has to be an emotional side of it eventually when you're just kind of out of commission for that long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely the emotional side, like with kind of anything that you go through in life. At that young of an age, it was, it probably wasn't as bad as it would be as maybe now, um, because I was still kind of doing multiple things. I was still doing track, still doing volleyball. I was uh, horseback riding and doing a bunch of stuff like that. But then that almost made it worse because I couldn't do anything of the things that I wanted to do. Um, like living on a farm, you, you're outside almost 95% of the time, you're doing things. And when you're inside, you're not sitting on a couch or anything. So I was very, very active with my lifestyle. Um, so when I was on bed rest, because I couldn't walk, it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty awful. Um, I guess like, what I could say is just try and do the little things. Like I know, the littlest thing was my mom took me to a hair salon at the end of the block in my wheelchair and she we got like all pretty I like had a shower and put on a new shirt and had my cast around my leg and everything but she wheelchaired me to the salon and I got my toenails clipped by a salon member and like that was like the highlight of like that trip or like that whole entire hospital stay kind of thing um and then there was an earl's on the corner so the same thing, we would try and like get pretty for that night and take my ID card. <laughs> like Earl's let me in and let me sit on the patio and like sit there and have a normal meal instead of the hospital meals and stuff. So I think just trying to find the littlest things that can find you any type of joy or any type of normalcy in those types of scenarios um, kind of gets you through, even if it's just like one thing a day or even if one day you don't have that, but maybe the next day you do it helps you out with those kind of things um i know like dairy queen has like the stallery blizzard day or something so you get blizzards a day and like those type of things made me happy i think i was young enough that the littlest things like that was kind of my normalcy um but i was in the hospital for a uh, full full month i was at home i think for a week before i got admitted into the stallery um kind of figuring out what was happening because after my surgery um I was walking with my left leg okay, but every time I put my right leg over the le over the bed, I would pass out, like instantly faint. 
So I actually, like, I couldn't use the washroom. I couldn't shower. couldn't do anything, really. So my parents drove me back to the surgeon. And the surgeon was like, oh, you're fine. Like, it's just pain. Like, it's just in your head, kind of like I dealt with before that. <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's just in my head. So he prescribed me a uh, insane amount of painkillers. And the next, that night, I did the same thing. I, like, tried to go to the washroom or something and completely passed out. So my mom was like, okay, this is enough. So we went to the Vagerville Hospital that night, where I'm from. And I went completely septic that night. Lost my heartbeat. And they brought me back to life with enough um, antibiotics. Holy. And the next, yeah, so then I was in Vagerville for a week. And my white blood cell count was perfectly fine which usually it goes up when you have an infection because it's trying to fight it. So they believed that I didn't have an infection, so they took me off all antibiotics and everything. And by the end of the week, I had a black line coming from my ankle all the way up to my back, which kind of my dad was like, hey, this is not okay. So they took me out of the hospital, didn't even get discharged or anything. My parents were like, we're leaving right now. So they took me out, and we went and got an ultrasound done. And the guy was like, hey, yeah, you need to go into the salary or something a little bit that, where they can do surgeries, like, right now. And then that night I got admitted and had a surgery. They had to clean out as much as they can. Um, and then they came out of that surgery, and they were like, yeah, the whole leg's dead. You need an amputation, which I actually didn't know until, like, September. So, like, my parents didn't tell me that I was scheduled for an amputation because... They didn't want, like, anything more invasive, like, to be in my mind. So they didn't tell me or anything. So I think in the long run, that was the best decision. But, yeah, they came out, said I needed an amputation. So, like, my parents kind of prepared for it. And a different surgeon went in. She's like, okay, well, let me take a look. And she was able to take the dead muscle away from the alive muscle. And then they were able to find a heartbeat down in my leg again. So then that's how I lost so much muscle is because they took the dead muscle away. So it ended up being a whole muscle, so your plantaris and your leg, and then most of my gastroc and soleus. So, yeah, that's kind of where the many surgeries came in from. So I had one right when I got admitted, and then the many surgeries for continuing to clean it out, and then I had vacuum packs on my leg and just trying to keep it healthy. So I think, yeah, it ended up being about 9 or 10 Wow, and then help us out with the timeline, because for you to play in the CCAA, I imagine you would have had to play high school and club again, right? So how mm-hmm. how quickly or what grade did you return to playing like volleyball and some other sports? Yeah, so um, I was in grade 10 when I got kind of diagnosed with compartment syndrome, and then it was my grade 10 summer where I got my surgeries and stuff. So I got surgery July 18th, and then August 5th, I got discharged. And then September, probably like 30th, I was kind of pushing myself back on the court to play because I was going crazy. (laughs) So um, I played high school, I played volleyball, and then I didn't play badminton. I did a little bit of track. Um, I actually went to provincials for track that year, so that was kind of a huge emotional roller coaster too, being able to succeed in something like that. And then I played club volleyball for a small town right next to mine, and then got scouted there from Nate. Awesome, and just help yeah. us out with your recruiting process. So how did you decide on Nate? Like, were, I, I understand you attended one of their camps, so maybe you got to meet the coaches yeah. there, or were you emailing some other schools? Like, was it just because what you wanted to study, or what helped you choose to kind of go there to study and play volleyball at the next level? 
Um, I think that camp that I went to was like a big eye opener. Um, I really liked the girls that were the coaches. They were team. They were players of the team at that time. And then I met Benj there too, and he seemed really nice and stuff. And then they actually put a big word in for me to Benj. So when I did email him, he said that he's heard about me before and he was excited to meet. Um, I did put my email out to a bunch of other colleges, I think to Lakeland, um, Grand Prairie, I believe. And kind of just like didn't didn't want to go there as bad. But if I got scouted there, then I would have. Um, I kind of wanted to come to the city just... So you're still close to home, but still able to be kind of independent and move out and stuff. So when I got, um, I got, I went to Nate and went to like a practice with them. And right after that, then I got signed. And when I got signed there, I was like, hey, well, yeah, this is where I want to go. And then they had the program of study that I was looking into. So it worked out absolutely perfectly. Nice. And how did you find the level of play there, like making the jump from high school and club to the college level? Like, was there a vet that helped you out or were the coaches a big help? Like, how did you find that you settled in? Um, there was actually 18 of us on the team the year that I joined. So there was 11 rookies. So all of us are kind of coming from the same experiences straight from high school to um, a big league like Nate's. Except for I was coming from a 1A high school where we barely had enough people on my team. And <laughs> right. I played I played like with a small town club team versus them playing for pandas and stuff. So it was a little bit of the underdog going into it. Um, and it was definitely a big jump. But um, once I kind of made friends on the team and stuff, they realized that like there doesn't matter if I was a small town kid or if I played pandas. Like we're all right now at the same level of play. So we just were able to push ourselves and like become that level of play. Awesome, awesome. And at what point did you uh, hear about the, the sitting team? Like, how did you get involved? Like, is there a recruitment process? Did you attend a tryout? Like, what point did you join the national team? Yeah, that's kind of a crazy story. So I was playing at Nate, and I was in a lot of pain with my leg again. Um, it just never recovered or anything. And I was actually getting diagnosed with stress fractures in that leg just because of the muscle mass that I lost and not ever recovering it or anything. So they took, they decided that I should take a year off and recover. So I registered my first year playing for Nate. And at that time, I was kind of just like building up other muscle mass and like body weight strength, strengthening and stuff. Um, but I was going crazy not being able to play again. And just kind of knowing the Volleyball Canada world, I knew about sitting volleyball. So I actually emailed Ian um, without even knowing him. And I was like, hey, like, do the girls ever train in Edmonton? Um, I could just be like an extra body, um, anything like that. And they're like, yeah, like they train at the Glen Rose, like this gym once a week if you ever want to go hang out with them. I was like, yeah, sure. So like I went out for a couple weeks and like nothing ever became of it. And then one night I was changing and they saw I have a big scar in my leg from my surgery. So they saw my scar. So I told them my kind of my story and how I lost so much muscle. And they were like, oh, like you know that like you could probably play with us and like be on our team and like qualify with us and I was like no way like that's pretty cool so then I kind of went through the steps got in contact with Nicole Van um got in contact with the physios on the team and they did a couple tests like they would for the classification um in any tournament and they said that I would probably classify and then I think I met the girls in January and by April I was trying out for their selection out camp 
so it's kind of a crazy roller coaster. <laughs> nice, and and we've had Doug Leroyd on from the from the men's team, and we kind of talked about the classification stuff. But just for some mm-hmm. of our new listeners, what's your understanding of that rule? If you could just give us a quick service level of how how people are eligible to play. Yeah, so there's minimal and there's full disabled. They changed it to like S one S V two or something because disabled isn't a very appropriate term. Um, so I classify under a minimal. And as it sits, you can only have two minimals on your roster at a time and only one on the court. So um, me and another girl on my team were both minimals, so we could both travel, um, but only one of us could play at a time. And then it kind of varies from different injuries, different disabilities for how you classify. Um, I will probably always be a minimal just because I have like full function of my hip, knee and ankle. At, on the by injured leg side um whereas some people uh they like can't move their foot or something so maybe they could be classified as a full full d um so it really really depends on like the type of injury the severity of the injury uh stuff like that um i don't know like the exact like you have to be missing like 40 percent mobility or range of motion like i don't know that for sure but yeah, you can only have two minimals on the roster and then one on the court at a time. Nice. Thank Yeah, thank you for that explanation. So Volleyball mm-hmm. Canada has done some good things, and sitting volleyball is now a component of the the level one, or excuse me, whatever the proper term is for the development coach level. So um, I, I've yeah. tried sitting, and I'm sure a lot of better players than I have have tried it, and it, it's pretty challenging. So even though you were playing at the varsity level, uh, what were some challenges when you first joined the sitting discipline? Like, was I'm sure some of the skills overlap, but it, it is a different game when you get into the details and the high level, right? So um, yeah. what are some of your early memories or some of the challenges that you felt when you first started playing? Um, definitely how fast it is, like with the net being so low and players still being tall, uh, we still have long torsos, long arms. The pace of the game is incredibly fast, um, compared to a standing game. I know sometimes you go and watch the McEwen girls cause bad coaches for them and we're like, holy man, they have so much time to read and so much time to like get under <laughs> that ball versus just like us trying to like wail our limbs as far as we could go to reach the ball. Um. So that was the biggest challenge. Uh, and then obviously figuring out how to move was like the other one. Um, with having two legs, it's almost a disadvantage just because they get in the way all the time. <laughs> so I can like pass with my left leg back, but when I swing, I have to have my right leg back. So switching my legs like through a minute or a millisecond rally is like pretty challenging. So you really have to focus on the movement of the game versus just how to hit the ball and how to set and stuff. Even, like, I I was never a setter, and then I came onto the team and I became a setter here. So having to move in rotations and be that primary um, component of the game now has been, like, another step that I'm working towards. So I think it's, I think the the pace of the game is the hardest it's, like, or the most different it is. And then uh, just being able to move. You have to move your hands so much, but then a millisecond later you have to have your hands up in there to be able to hit so like those are the two two main differences now with you transferring to the setter role like uh, as you mentioned the game is so fast what other tactics mm-hmm. have you guys tried to employ because in, in watching a few clips uh you'll set it to the middle right so you'll be a middle blocker mm-hmm. but then also set the second ball so i imagine offensively you guys are just trying to set it really fast to either pin right so um when you're in the back row are you also playing like a, a six up or where are you kind of on the floor in those situations 
Yeah, so we play a 6-2 right now. Uh, me and Jen Oaks are the two setters. And then in the back row, we play a 6-back, actually. We just switched from, in 2017, we were playing a 6-up. But with, like, I think the change, the game has become more, um, I think, more simplified. Like, more teams are doing, like, the three hits per when the ball's on your side. Whereas, usually, sometimes when you play the Europe teams, it's just, like, ping-pong playing with them. So, <laughs> I think with people getting more comfortable with playing sitting volleyball, it's become better volleyball. So, we moved back to a six-back. Uh, and then, I set from the back row. And then, yeah, when I'm in the front row, I set... I don't set as much um, unless we're, like, in a trouble situation. And then Jen goes back to pass. And then I'll set from the middle. But if not, then I'm a middle blocker in the front row. So it's very – it's a lot of different rotations. Like, sometimes I'll pass in the back row and then pass to hit in the front row middle versus, like, pass to hit on the left side, which most standing teams do. So I don't even think you could do that in standing, <laughs> like, pass to hit in the middle. So it's a whole different game when you come and break it down to, like, the tactical side of it. And yeah, with being a setter, it's just like, it's a lot different when you're in the back row and you're, okay, I have to get this ball, I have to get this ball, I'm a setter, to going in the front row and now you're a middle blocker and a middle hitter. You have to figure out who your opponent is on the other side to hit against versus um, who to set when you're setting. So as a middle blocker, what are some tactics you use? Like, would you ever commit or front to another attacker because they're so skilled? Or are you mostly on, like, a read and just trying to chase the set and, and get hands up there? Like, uh, this is mostly from my own understanding, but I hopefully yeah. there's some listeners wondering the same thing. But um, how many variations kind of go into your game plan and your blocking strategy? Yeah, so we mostly um, key to a hitter uh, when we're playing the States in Brazil. Um, when we play a lower-level team, then sometimes it's mostly just read where the set's going to go because they usually just, like, fire out to the left side because that's what they're comfortable with versus playing the States. Their middle and right side and left side are all three huge opponents. So um, keying to a hitter is kind of, like, the most tactic we do. We'll kind of cheat sometimes. So my better push is to the right. So I'll kind of cheat more to the right, their right side. So I'm a little bit more on the left side of our court. And then since I can push better, um, then I can close that block onto their left side, if that kind of makes sense. So you really got to like think about which way you can push and then which way also the opponent's pushing. So if my opponent on the other side of the net, if their legs are going to combine, then there, that usually means that there's a seam there. So then I want to run my offense into that seam. So there's a lot of um, different tactical sides that you're going to think about in the sitting game versus the standing game. You'll just kind of think like, oh, this person jumps higher than this person. This person's their literal blocker versus where their legs are, where they push, and, uh, and then who's bigger and who's smaller. And, and one thing that's unique about the sitting game is you can block the serve. So does that affect your serving strategy at all and, and how aggressive people can be? Or are you really just looking for lanes to fire it through? Like what would be, without sharing too many secrets that hopefully Coach Nicole doesn't mind, but uh, what, what's maybe a tactic that somebody can watch for when we're cheering you guys on at your next competition? Yeah, serving's really tough. Um, I really struggled with that in Halifax. Um, it's because when you're going against people with who are so tall, you want to serve above them or into the lanes. But you can't serve into them so it's it tends to be more of a loppier serve um i'm still trying to figure out that part of my game and it's been what four years on the team now <laughs> <Right>. so <laughs> it is a really tough skill to have um at the service line 
I find that if we didn't have blockers, though, then it would be a serve-pass battle more than volleyball already is. Um, those blockers allow us to take away a little bit of room, so the server has to serve those lanes where then you can just kind of sit to and find the ball, versus if the like the net's only a meter five off the ground, so and I could probably reach my whole hand and a little bit of my wrist, so I could probably hit a pretty good topper down at it if there was no blocker, but since there is, you kind of have to take a little bit of speed off and find the corners and the spots more versus kind of just trying to get in into the court. And doing some research before the show, I believe you guys are ranked fifth in the world right now. So for somebody yeah. watching and wants to watch more of sitting, because it is very entertaining, in your uh -huh. opinion, what separates a high-level team like yourself and some of the lower levels? So you kind of hinted that some teams don't use all three contacts and they kind of want to be tricky and things like that. But with yeah. some of the higher-level teams, is it fair to say that they're just better at, at, at setting and digging? Or what are some really key, key skills in sitting that really separate the top from the bottom teams? Um, I think the one that correlates with standing is the, like the ball control. Um, the states have an incredible, they're incredible with their ball, ball control. They know how to play it and where to put the ball at all times. And they kind of run the exact same offense as we do. They run a 5-1 mostly though, and we run the 6-2. I think a, like the people who are ranked 1-4, to four, I think they all play 6-back. Definitely more of a structured game where they run the 6-2 or the 5-1. They have a designated left side, right side, middle, um, designated center, whereas people who are kind of on the lower level of the rankings, it's like you play where you are on the rotation, so the person in two will most likely be the center and or the middle in three. They sometimes play a structured defense, but not very often, um, so it's almost hard to play against those teams because you don't know where the exact pot is or where the exact corner shot would be versus when you're playing other teams you know that the pot is exposed on six backs. So you want to try and focus on that well. Um, so, yeah, I think, like, the more of a structured teams are the ones who are ranked above us and us. And then even, like, the ones who are ranked seven, eight, nine, like, everyone's a really good competitor. And I'm not, like, saying that uh, we're better than anybody below us because they could easily put our run for our money. But, yeah, the people who are kind of, like, the teams that are lower in the rankings don't play as structured and stuff like that. So you mentioned you had an opportunity because there was a, a group training in Edmonton, but my understanding is there isn't a centralized training location for either the men's or city or men's or women's excuse me sitting teams. Before major games like say Parapan or or your uh, Paralympic qualifier, how long would the team be together, or what do you guys do? Does does Coach Nicole give homework or some training to do that you you don't feel like you're behind, or how do you guys manage not being at practice every week with the squad? Yeah, it's really challenging. Our, our training center is mostly out of Seville and Edmonton. So that whenever we have training camps or anything, all the girls will fly into Edmonton and we'll train out of Seville. So that's really convenient for me as I live in Edmonton. <laughs> um, but before a training camp or uh, a competition, sorry, we'll have a centralized uh, about three weeks, I think is the longest we've gone. So it's every day for three weeks two-a-day practices plus weights um, twice a week and stuff like that. So it's what you would do if you were centralized almost every week, except for now it's strictly volleyball and that's it. So everybody moves to Edmonton for three weeks and we train every single day and we work as hard as we can to right before a competition. Throughout the year, though, we have about one camp a month where everybody will fly into Edmonton and we'll uh, just do like a – Normal Volleyball Canada training camp where we just play against ourselves and stuff. 
Nice, nice. And yeah. with you being an athlete your whole life, how big of a thrill was it for you to go to a multi-sport games in Peru? Like, was it kind of neat being in the dining hall and seeing athletes from all over that part of the world and just kind of experiencing what everybody else was up to? Oh, yeah, it was unreal. I was, yeah, I was in awe, like, the entire experience. Even, like, the Athletes Village, like, staying in a place where other athletes have been and then where the pair, where, where the Pan Am Games, where those athletes stay, too. It's kind of an extremely, like, surreal situation um it was yeah it was unbelievable because you're competing at the second highest level of games that you could ever compete at with being at the parapanam games and then the paralympics being the next highest um so i was definitely in my glory because i never thought that when i was in 2014 and in the hospital bed that i would be at the parapanam games just a couple years later and how did you manage like the ups and downs of the event? And what I mean by that is there, there's times where you have to be in game mode and ready for your competition, but it, it feels like a special opportunity where maybe you want to go support other athletes or other Canadians who are competing, right? So how did you guys manage the time of the event? Did you get a chance to go support other Canadians or was it pretty social when you're in the dining hall or is everybody like laser focused on what they need to do? It's a little bit social in the dining hall. Um, I think I talked to like a couple women from the women's rug or basketball team, the wheelchair basketball. And then you kind of talk to the people you know. We play the States almost like four times a year kind of thing. So we talked to some of the girls from there. But when once it was competition time, I think there was this huge turn of events in the dining hall and nobody really talked to each other. Uh, you, can, you would say hi and stuff, obviously, but you wouldn't sit next to them. For having lunch, you would stay with your team because you you're leaving for your game in five minutes kind of thing. Unfortunately, we weren't able to go and see any other games, though, just because we were playing to a pretty strict schedule. And our, our, our venue was about an hour and a half away from the uh, Athletes Village. So it's, we didn't really have much time, like, in between going to the game, coming back from a game, and then going to bed. Like, sometimes we had a really late game, so we would get back at, like, 10 p.m. kind of thing. So unfortunately, we weren't able to do that, but maybe at the Paralympics, we'll have that chance to go and support other athletes because it's so much fun to be able to support other people doing the same kind of dream you're doing. And what do you remember about Peru? Like you've mentioned the U.S. are there and they're quite strong. So just help us out with a couple other countries there as the tournament progressed. Obviously, being top five in the world means you're, you're favorite at a tournament like that, but it's very competitive. And for you to medal, like what do you remember from that tournament as it kind of progressed from pool play into the medal round? It was always intense. That's kind of what I remember. It was always like you wake up, you eat, everyone's kind of goofing around at breakfast, but then you go into a video session and everyone's more serious after that for lunch. And then you go back, you kind of get ready. And then supper right before the game, everyone's kind of like, we're still having fun and we're still joking around and stuff, but you can tell that everyone has kind of shifted their mindset. So all they're thinking is the game coming up in a couple hours. Going into like medals and stuff was pretty pretty unreal you're playing one of the I always say this for every competition that I go to is that I'm playing in one of the most important games that I've ever played in and then going to the Olympics or the Paralympics it'll be the exact same speech that I kind of give to myself but going into that bronze medal game like I know some of our teammates were like oh like we don't want another bronze all we get is bronze but then I remember I was like well this is my like first parapan bronze I want this bronze so like Let's do it for me then, because I want it. And then going into Halifax, it was kind of the same thing. Like, I want this gold now. So um, being in Peru and stuff, it was it was a very intense competition, as it was us, Brazil, and USA, and then against Peru. 
Brazil, we took them to, I think, four in the first round robin, or maybe five. And then in the uh, medal games, and I think it was semifinals or quarterfinals we played them in. Yeah, quarters. That's when we kind of lost. I think the pressure got to us, and they came out with a completely different tactic against us, which allowed us to grow from that to be able to compete in Halifax in that really important game. Now, is there anyone on the squad from Halifax? Like, to, to play on home soil, I'm sure, is very excited, but uh, was there any extra distractions maybe with, like, family being around, or was there anyone really local, or is most of the squad from out west? We had two players from Ontario, so kind of close, but their family was actually from Edmonton, so their family uh, flew there. We had a bunch of family fly down. My parents came down. Um, we had a whole bleacher full of Canada, just parents and or, like, aunties and uncles and grandparents. So we had a lot of, um, I wouldn't necessarily call them a distraction, but a lot of support <laughs> with like the immediate hometown crowd versus um, being in Halifax and being able to play on home soil was the other huge one. I know with the softball team coming out, I was kind of like in my awe because being an athlete, all you want to do is meet like other high competitor athletes. So like I quickly went and said hi to them after and like had my little glory moment meeting another athlete. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, we definitely had the home soil advantage in that tournament for sure. Now, is it normal in a tournament to play multiple games in a day? Like fans like me who are following the results, like it wasn't unusual for you guys to play two matches a day in Halifax, right? Yeah, no, we played, I think, every game except for two days. We played two a day matches. It's not very normal. I think just with the amount of games that we had to play and the amount of time that we had to play them, they had to make it two a days. Um... It actually worked out pretty fine. I was really nervous for it, but I think with training two times a day and we do two-hour practices twice a day plus weights, we were really prepared for that type of stamina we needed to control throughout the week. Um, but I know I was very nervous to have to play the two games a day um, just because, yeah, it isn't very normal. Now, was the expectation to win, like, was that something you guys said out loud or put on the whiteboard in the team room? Like, are you more process-driven or was it like, we're, we're getting off the, the plane in Halifax and we're here to win the tournament? Yeah, it was definitely we had to win. <laughs> None of us wanted to get that silver or bronze or fourth place or fifth place medal. None of us wanted that. Um, we wanted to be the best at that tournament and we wanted to win. So it was because it wasn't even just winning. It was being able to qualify, which was, I think, almost like the bigger medal was that qualification um, for a spot that we were able to click versus the gold medal, which obviously is amazing ha having hanging on the wall, too. <laughs> Now, we talked before the show, uh, there are some teammates who were in Rio. Did they kind of aid the team with any experience or anything they could bring in Halifax when the pressure got there? Because it is exciting to obviously qualify for the Paralympics, but with, with some people already been there, was that kind of a grounding and calming thing for the squad? I think so. Um, I think that some people were able to kind of take a step back and be like, okay, like I've done this before, I know I can do it again. Um, which allowed us to kind of be able to be more grounded going into the game. The other thing I think was that we had so much confidence going into this tournament. We all like, like we have a schedule of how much we did before the tournament and we bought into this tournament, every single one of us. And we trained our butts off for the whole, I think it was, I think two months, maybe three months before where we officially like we're going and we're going to win. And that's the only option we're going to have. I think in December we decided that, or maybe the November camp we had. And we, I think the confidence that we had doing all of that training allowed us to all just be like, we know that we can play our best, and like that's what we're going to go do. And 
we were able to actually do that, which sometimes doesn't happen in sports. <laughs> There's always like that rocky roller coaster that you never know what's going to happen. But we were able to stay grounded and stay into the game and not get lost in the sight of holy man in two points we could be um, Olympic qualified. Uh, we were able to just like stay like, okay, this is the next point, and then this is the next point after that. And how important was it for you guys to do well on home soil and kind of showcase how good the squad is in Halifax when you guys were there? Um, I think like this interview means like a lot to us coming from the Volleyball Canada and the sitting volleyball sport. We don't get much coverage and even in Halifax, the coverage that we did get and now saying that like the fans around have been, that were watching us when we were there, even getting um, CBC to stream us was like a huge, huge ac- accomplishment for our team, I think, because um, we all buy in for each other and which obviously buys in for the country. And allowing now that we work this hard and we have like these fans and these interviews now and this um, kind of this broadening of our sport is absolutely huge for us. We want people to be able to like see the sitting sport and see um, us competing against it and us being a huge competitor. I think in 2016 they were 11th or something and then in 2017 we were 8th and now we're 5th. So in less than five years we've grown so much and just like in five years from now we don't know where the sport will be but we're super excited for it and having this opportunity to do this interview and hopefully more in the future and widen our fan base and widen the broadcasting and the um, media base will be absolutely huge for our sport so it's extremely exciting awesome well said yeah Yeah, thanks for that so (laughs) yeah uh one tradition we we've started to make on the show is just have everybody kind of tell us a funny story where you're you're playing at the highest level you're going to be in tokyo but there's still some funny or odd stuff that happens in the volleyball world so yeah. i was wondering if you had a, a funny story you could leave us with a laugh before we let you go the one that i could think of is that we were in peru and we were leaving the opening ceremonies and we had these canada hats that were like kind of weird they were like foamy and like looked awful on you but they were metal or ceremony outfits but we didn't need them after that, so we're like, okay, like, we kind of want to trade these for something kind of cool, see if, like, somebody will give us a hoodie or something. <laughs> so we're walking out, and we're like, okay, who can we, like, maybe brag to? But there was nobody around us, because they had, like, our walkway kind of paved off, except for police people. <laughs> so we're like, okay, well, let's just, like, go and try. So one of my teammates went up and was like, can we trade hats? And, like, this little small Peruvian, like, policeman was like, um okay and i think he got like super stressed out because all of us started to come to like every policeman who like (laughs) they were like these people like you see them in like london where they have like no facial expression standing super tall and like don't even look at you when you're walking by like super professional people and we're like hey like you want to trade hats like (laughs) so we're all a little bit worried that they kind of got fired after that (laughs) they weren't weren't in their official uniform after that but (laughs) oh well we got cool hats so Oh, that's so amazing. And you definitely yeah. wouldn't have got that experience if you weren't a high-level athlete. Like, if I were to just go be a tourist in Peru, there's no way a police officer is trading a hat with me. It's like, Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Sarah. And sorry for a few silly questions, but we're still learning about sitting as much as we can. But uh, big fan. Like you said, it's a very, very wicked fast sport and, and a high skill level. So it was great to connect with you and learn as much as we could. And good luck in all the prep that's going to happen. And it'll be exciting to see you guys in Tokyo. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having us out. And there's definitely no stupid questions in sitting. It's kind of a crazy game, so (laughs) fire them out. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks, Sarah. I'll talk to you later. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.